You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello. And thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 119, Churchill, 1932. When we last left off with Winston Churchill, he had just had his third strike and was now out. Out of the Tory shadow government, the party's unofficial cabinet that would take over once they were back in power. And Ramsay McDonald's Labor Party was losing support fast. Not that it mattered anymore. Winston's third strike had been his opposition to granting India dominion status. For Churchill, India was the brightest jewel of the British imperial crown, and his conviction echoed the words of Queen Victoria. I think it very unwise to give up what we hold. The first strike had been the Dardanelles fiasco, and as he was the most well-known advocate of it, the fault as far as the public was concerned, lay with him. The second strike was the Tories' fall from power, which landed Labour on top. This, too, was blamed on Winston, if only because his star shined the most bright. Someone had to be blamed. And now Churchill was a man without support and seemingly out of joint, a cursed spite, with the times. Yet he still retained his seat in the House. The people of Epping had not rejected him, just those in power, those that mattered. But Winston had been a frenzy of activity from the day he could walk, so even now he would not, could not, let his status as a backbencher slow him down. Quite simply, the universe was a marvel to him, and he intended to explore as much of it as was possible. This drive to do to accomplish, had some of its roots in his father's meteoric rise and then fall 
from power. Winston had first come into politics on a quest to revenge himself against those who had vanquished his father, Randolph. But now, in 1932, they had been vanquished themselves long ago. Winston now toiled mightily for a much more basic reason. He had to constantly bring in money through his writings to keep his family fed and to keep them all ensconced in his beloved Chartwell. During Churchill's ten years in the political wilderness, he would put to paper, through scribes, a million words. But now, in 1932, at least politically, the 58-year-old backbencher is ignored, because he can be ignored with impunity. Though he railed against Prussian aggression and the passivity of his own people, no one listened. He is seen as past it, as far as his career is concerned. True, he had started out young, had once been a dashing British officer, but that was so long ago. Maybe he was as mad as his father. Maybe he wasn't. But it didn't matter now. The Churchillian storm was over. The current members of the House had survived. And perhaps Winston, in his darker moments, and the man knew the depths of depression, believed what was said of him. Yet a part of him still believed in his star, that mystical part of the universe that was there just for him, that looked out for him and his future. But it's telling that he didn't live his life looking over his shoulder for his fortune to change. At Chartwell, he was already planning on building another cottage on the grounds, this one for him and Clemmy to move into. After all, his son Randolph was now 21 and should become the lord of the manor. A far more quiet and simpler life was to be their future. Speaking of Clemmy, his cat, she was still his, and he hers. That would never change. Outside the grounds of Chartwell, British society was uneasy. There was change in the air. These post-war Britons were no longer sure what the rules were. Throughout the war, those of position had died and were replaced by others who never thought to wish for positions of power or responsibility. A meritocracy of sorts had emerged from wartime Britain, but it wasn't just the proper class, the right class. The idea that one stayed at the level one was born into now seemed anachronistic. That notion, and others like it, didn't fit anymore, didn't feel right. And with this unsettledness came fear, fear of the unknown. Was the man in the bowler hat, or cane, really my better? Winston never felt this fear. He knew where he belonged in society. But for the people in general, this clash of exceptions versus reality caused uneasiness. Yet Churchill had been affected. He fed his family by his labor. He wrote books and articles, whatever would sell, whatever would keep his fed, clothed, and warm. Many of his peers had been hurt during the Depression, but they had generational wealth. It would take more than falling stock prices to put them in a state of poverty. After all, their vast tracts of land or flocks of animals or ownership of business did not disappear. They were all just worth less, but they still had them. 
And yet, for all this economic and social upheaval, for Winston, life was to be lived. Which meant having the means to live that life and live well. He could not contemplate anything else. The man had his daily schedule, which allowed him to produce his writings on a regular basis. And so, he dared anyone to impede it. And those within his world had come to, well, not respect it, but tolerate his ways. For Churchill had not changed. He still did not know how to live on someone else's terms and was incapable of compromise. That seemed to him a sign of weakness. Since his car accident in New York, his doctor had forbade Brick Lane, his favorite pastime. So he escaped his study by feeding the animals each evening who would never be killed for food, especially after he had given them a name. His other soul-soothing activity was painting. Churchill claimed that during this part of his life, if he had not painted, he would have gone mad. Though most of the political world has deserted him, the man had his allies, but he sees them as friends. Two MPs are still invited to dinner and accept that invitation whenever it's offered. Robert J.G. Bob Boothby and Brendan Bracken. The latter, with his shock of untamable red hair, is rumored to be Winston's illegitimate son, and the supposed father flames the rumors, though they are untrue. Yet the gossip delights him. These two men, like the others invited to Chartwell, are offered a place at his table because they interest or fascinate the master. That fascination is because they have done something with their lives. Bracken is a self-made millionaire, which can't help but impress the struggling writer, artist, politician, celebrity, although the word is not in use yet. And of course, military men are honored at Chartwell. But what's more, any of them who have earned the Victoria Cross should be prepared to receive a hug, because that is in their future. Most telling is when Winston meets New Zealander Sir Bernard Freiburg, the war hero. Winston insists that the man remove his shirt so he can count for himself his 33 scars of battle. Another Bernard, this one the American financier, Bernard Baruch, is a friend of the family and Winston's ally. And they, the family, whether they know it or not, owe this Bernard everything they still have post the collapse in New York. Like most who were not outright ruined in 1929, Churchill was badly financially mauled. The cab did the actual mauling, but roughly came out even during those first dark days. Three years ago, while in New York, Winston sought to take his little and turn it into a lot by trying to guess which way the market would go. And although his instincts were dead on when it came to the menace that Germany threatened, and Bernard Baruch, a Jew, was in total agreement with this, Winston had the financial aim of a man throwing a dart during a storm in the dark with a blindfold on. And the young financier knew this, so he had a standing order put in behind Winston's back. The order was simple. Whenever Winston said buy, the staff sold. Whenever the Englishman said sell, the staff were instructed to buy. So, after the initial crash, Winston had gained almost as much as he had lost. 
The young man even paid the commissions on the transactions. Winston, relieved at not having to sell Chartwell, heartily thanked the man and had, for once, learned a lesson about his limitations. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Another stalwart friend was Professor Frederick Lindman, a.k.a the prof, as the family called him. Like Winston, Lindman was no spring chicken and had several accomplishments. He had established the Kite Balloon Barrage around London during the Great War, created an effective method of getting aircraft out of a spin, proved one of Einstein's quantum theories correct, and had, in fact, just published a book entitled Physical Significance of Quantum Theory. Yet many of his students and younger colleagues believe, like so many did of Winston, that his best days were behind him. Had a jolly good run, but let's see who else has something brewing. But these people, all of them, were wrong about Winston and Lindman. They both still had something vital to offer their worlds. As for some of Winston's other friends, there are those who have passed. They are no more. Yet the one thing Winston missed most about them was their ability to challenge him and his mental acrobatics. What's more, the closest ones bested him roughly half of the time. The departed F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead, was one. Yet he was laid low past these two years now. To Winston's heart and mind, his kind would not come again. As for Max Aiken, come Lord Beaverbrook, the newspaper magnate, he was put off his game by no one and could match Winston witty repartee for repartee. The man was like the rocks of Stonehenge, which is often a trait of self-made men. But during this decade of Winston's absence from the limelight, Beaverbrook is in agreement with many of his circle. That Hitler is not the threat Winston claims he is. That the Austrian firebrand's friendship or at least acquaintance, is worth cultivating. So for now, the beaver, as the man is called by the Churchills, will not be seen at Chartwell for some time. But Churchill and Beaverbrook, who first met in 1911, will come together again, when the Britain they both love is threatened. The phrase, home is where the heart is, best describes Winston at this time. Clementine had his heart, but Chartwell, which he bought for 5,000 pounds and spent 18,000 more in renovations, had his soul. 
While it's true he stayed at number 11, Morpeth Mansions, when Parliament was in session, very little could drag him away from his manor, his home. And so, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, then Muhammad must go to the mountain, which is how Winston felt about movies. By this time, MGM had started renting movies, and Winston was one of their better customers. And Winston might have read great works, might have written great works, even memorized great works, no exaggeration, but his taste in films was middle of the road. But putting movies aside, Churchill, who came to maturity before the turn of the century, hated most modern things, including cars. He had one and used it, but would have done without, if possible. So it will come as no surprise that he is one of Britain's worst drivers, right up there, or down there, with Major General Sterling of the SAS, who will go on to destroy hundreds of Rommel's planes, fuel trucks, and other vehicles in North Africa one day. Except that Sterling, when he got stuck in traffic, did not drive on the relatively open sidewalk, as Winston did. Really. However, when it comes to firearms, it was a different story. At the age of 70, Churchill will challenge Dwight D. Eisenhower to a contest. Winston will shoot ten times, and nine bullets will hit the mark. One is just off. As for the leader of the armed forces of Europe, well, he missed the target completely. One could suppose that he lost on purpose. You know, he was dealing with a politician. But missing the whole damn thing? For those who are invited to Chartwell for lunch or dinner, or find themselves in the great man's company, there is a good chance they will hear Winston's predictions. Hitler will come to power. Germany will rearm and revenge itself on France and Britain. And if Britain wants to stay out of it this time, huge amounts of money need to be spent to make their island a fortress. But, as he has been labeled the nefarious navigator of the Dardanelles fiasco, his words are ignored. No one wants to relive the Great War or even financially prepare for the possible eventuality. Such is the national revulsion to the call of arms. Churchill's other topic of choice is his next great literary undertaking. Hard upon his four-volume work, Marlborough, His Life and Times, a series of books about his famous ancestor, John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough, Winston plans to start another four-volume work, this one entitled, History of the English-Speaking Peoples. But then he sadly informs his listener, I doubt I shall finish it before the war comes. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So you probably noticed this episode was about Churchill and not about Crete. Never fear, nothing's changed. Crete is still coming. It's just that I thought besides doing the two big episodes each month, and I'm trying to do uh, three if I can, I wanted to really get back to the Churchill story. I had, when I was doing the series, and I think I, not that I ever planned on doing 25 episodes of Churchill, but I got a lot of positive feedback and I got one and a half negative emails about it. 
Don't ask. So I thought when I could, I would just squeeze in these little short stories and bring in, continue on with his story to show what he was up against, uh, what was going on in his life in the political wilderness, because it's just a, it's just a good story, and and why not? So I hope you enjoyed, and if you don't like it, you can just ignore it and wait for the, uh, for the other story to come along. That is perfectly okay. So I'm just going to throw this out real quick before I let you go. Uh, if you go to Audible, I would definitely recommend. Um, Churchill's My Early Life, or the first volume of History of the English-Speaking Peoples. Uh, it's a lot of good It's a good stories. Um, he goes all the way back, and of course, the way he writes, it's really beautiful, and it's read to you. So um, there, those are some really good selections. Of course, there's other ones, obviously, that his work about World War II. So if you're so inclined, you can go through my website, worldwar2podcast.net, and uh, click on the Audible link and pick something or pick anything you want. You get the uh, first episode for free, whether you keep the membership or not. The details are all there. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you soon, I think around the 15th, with the uh, full story of Crete. <laughs>